Hey, my name is Kevin Clark. I'm the host of a new football podcast called Slow News Day. I want to tell you about it. On Mondays, Lindsey Jones and I will recap the weekend in football that was, as well as look ahead to what's next. On Wednesday, the normal Slow News Day, the thing you've been watching for years, current players, current coaches, current analysts talking about the football world. And on Friday... It's a wild card. Could be some college football, could be more pro stuff. It's a video podcast, so you can watch it on Spotify or listen to it wherever you get your podcasts. Follow on Spotify. It's Slow News Day. It's Off the Pike, presented by FanDuel. April showers bring a loaded sports calendar, and FanDuel is the place to bet on it all. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Parlay Hub. Filter by odds, sport, and bet type to easily find the most popular parlays and same-game parlays all on one page. Plus, start betting on the Explore page in the Pulse and get paid instantly when you win. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, America's number one sportsbook. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of this episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Joining us now, the voice of the NHL on ESPN and ABC. It is Sean McDonough. Sean, what's going on, man? How are you, Brian? Good to be with you. I'm doing well. Pleasure to see you, as always. I'm doing well, too. My, my only thing right now, Sean, is our uh, Syracuse Orange, man. I don't know what's going on with that hoops program. Still so hopefully, my, I'm still loyal. Still you still got it on. on. Yeah, because it's free. Yeah. And as you know, when you're a member of the media, if it's free, I'll take three. So that's our model. <laughs> No doubt about that. So, hey, before I I ask you a question, before you start asking questions, I'm just curious, off the pike, where did that, what's the genesis of that? Maybe some of your loyal listeners might, maybe they already know that, but. Well, we're trying to do something with like something Boston related. And we came up with, how about something with the mass pike? So then we came up with off the pike. We workshopped on the pike. Off the pike sounds like a little better because, you know, maybe it's a little crazy. Yeah, there you go. Kind of, what a lot of the cool kids say today. So yeah, so kind of I like that. It. That was kind of the genesis for it. We had a couple. We had a lot of working titles that we were thinking of, but we landed on off the pike, and I like it. I think we got a nice logo too. It's a nice green logo, so it's pretty oh, cool. Really? It's like when, yeah, it's like I an actual. I don't see that. Do I actually get to see that? Is it? A... Uh, you can see it on the. You can see it on Spotify. The logo. You can see oh, it on there. Huh? Yeah, well, the boss. Go, the boss actually had like a mass pike sign, and they made the artwork out of that. So it's pretty cool. Did yeah. you get permission from the Commonwealth out of Massachusetts? I don't want to cause a problem. No comment. Okay. No comment. I'm not, not going to answer that. Trademark violation. There you go. We <laughs> yeah. already have controversy. And yeah, we're, already. We're, we're not even... Yeah, we're not even a minute in. All right, so hey, before we get into the Bruins, uh, this is now your second year doing the NHL on ESPN and ABC. I know you are excited when you guys got the rights. So how has it been the first two years? Are you having a ton of fun doing this? I am. I haven't done much this year. I think I've done uh, one, two, three, four or five games now, including the All-Star game. You know, they kind of let me focus on college football during the college football season. And we don't have a lot of over-the-year hockey. You know, we have obviously a lot of ESPN plus hockey. 
yeah. um, early in the season, but we don't have a lot of ESPN and ABC games because uh, they're college football windows and our NFL games, obviously on Monday nights. And so uh, they kind of let me focus on that. So I'm really just getting back into it now. I am enjoying it. I feel much more comfortable this year. You know, last year I hadn't really done hockey. I might've done a couple games, uh, frozen four in there, but I hadn't really done hockey. I hadn't done NHL hockey in 17 or 18 years since the last time ESPN had it. So, you know, it was, it was odd. You know, most sports that I do, you know, football season starts in the first couple of series of a football game. It takes a little while to get back in a lingo, but then you get it, you know, jumping back into hockey was totally different. You know, it's just, the game is so much faster than it was. And I think it's a lot better than it was 17 years ago. You know, the, they got rid of the two line pass, which I, well, I thought was a great idea. You know, they, they put in other initiatives to try to keep the game moving. And these guys are just bigger and faster and stronger than the guys who played before. So, you know, I, the first few games last year, you know, here it comes, we had Pittsburgh and, uh, Tampa Bay in our opener. Like, well, here comes uh, Nikita Kucherov. And I looked down for a note or something. I look up and like, where did the puck go? Where did he go? You know, where did, <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, you know, back in the old days and when everybody's playing the trap and the, you know, the slow defensemen are kind of lugging the puck up the ice. You had a little more time for that. So I learned fast, uh, you know, to, to get up to speed and don't look away and make sure you memorize the names and numbers. And then, um, you know, ESPN and the NHL want storytelling, which is hard when the game's going that fast. So, yeah. you know, a couple of times I was in mid-sentence and he has a great step and they score, you know, there's nothing. <laughs> so, you know, I had to learn, okay, you think just because the puck's at center ice, you got a second or two, but you never know. I mean, the puck can be in the net almost uh, at any moment. So you really need to pick your spots and you really need to kind of, uh, if you're going to say something, have it be bullet points, unlike this answer. Um, rather than soliloquies. Yeah, so, and by the way, Sean, like, I was looking through some stuff. You've called, like, a ton of big games, obviously. You had the Joe Carter home run off Mitch Williams in 93, right? You called that crazy Michigan State-Michigan game from a couple of years ago where the punter just, like, he dropped the ball in Michigan State scores to win the game is a crazy it was like absolutely <laughs> yeah it was crazy but do you have like a favorite uh call that like a favorite game or a favorite moment from your career is it too well, tough to like memorable ones. i actually think the better baseball game and you'll remember this vividly being the baseball guy that you are was the year before i did the national baseball for cbs for two years 92 and 93 because they we lost the rights after 93 but 892 was the NLCS, the Atlanta Braves and the Pittsburgh Pirates. You know, the Braves were pretty considerable favorite. The Pirates were kind of at the end of that window with Bonds and Dan Slyke and even Jim Leland being the manager. I think a lot of us knew it was probably going to be the end for him in Pittsburgh. You know, so uh, they're ahead 2 nothing going to the bottom of the ninth. Atlanta Fulton County Stadium is as quiet as can be. And, uh, you know, this amazing rally that had so much in it um, including an error by Chico leaned uh, early in the inning to kind of start the Braves rally. And then Sid Breen, you know, scores the winning run, one of the slowest guys in baseball by a, a foot <laughs> and another one of my voice cracks. But, um, and when that happened, that was probably the first voice crack that I remember. And I was kind of horrified at the time, but then, you know, it was so much great reaction. People said, you know, it was perfect for the play. You know, it was like one of the most dramatic endings in the history of baseball for one team to be one out away from, 
winning the series, going to the World Series, and then have it completely flip. Um, you know, it's about as dramatic an ending with two outs in the bottom of the ninth that you can have. So, you know, to me, whatever sport you're calling, your call should always kind of match the moment. So, you know, I, I, I feel like that one did. So, um, and the Joe Carter home run too. But, uh, yeah, then, you know, the six overtime game, our alma mater played in the Big East tournament against UConn was one of the most oh, yeah. sporting events that I've ever seen too. You know, it was lucky to be there and lucky to be at the Masters for a few at Tiger Williams. Uh, Tiger Williams, Tiger, I'm back into hockey mode. Tiger Woods' is, uh, <laughs> dominant performance uh, performances at Augusta. Yeah, I guess if you hang around long enough, you get in the right place at the right time a few times. No doubt about that. Yeah, that six overtime game. I, I remember that game like it was yesterday. And I was thinking too, like the other day, man, I miss like, even when like I was in school, the Big East was incredibly interesting, right? Like when I was there, Villanova was really good. Pittsburgh had like Dewan Blair, who was really good. UConn was still good at that time. Louisville with Rick Pitino, they were rolling. And you had like all these competitive games. And now it's like Syracuse is in the ACC. Obviously, understand why they had to do it. But the Big East, just in terms of the product. That, and now look, they'll probably get like five, six teams in the tournament this year. But that old Big East was just so much fun to watch. And like every year, the tournament at Madison Square Garden, it was just like an awesome couple of days. So I do kind of miss that about college basketball. Yeah, well, it was awesome. Old Big East, you know, the old Big East, the ones you just mentioned, all the teams. Um, and even back to the early, early days before the Louisville's and Notre Dame's were involved. You know, it was back when I was in school, you know, when Syracuse, Georgetown with Patrick Ewing and yeah. Uh, that was such an unbelievable rivalry. I thought the best 30 for 30 ESPN documentary that I ever saw was the one they did about the Big East. And as I watched it, it was kind of the history of the Big East and then the deterioration of the Big East. As I watched it, as a matter of fact, I, I texted the coach, basketball coach at our alma mater, uh, Mr. Happy Coach Jim Beheim, as I was watching <laughs> it. And I said, I am... Uh, uh, he actually kind of chuckles with that nickname, by the way. It's a, I'm not <laughs> saying it behind his back because... Uh, I say it to his face, um, but um, and I've called him that on the air a couple of times, too. But um, I texted him. I said, you know, I'm watching this and I'm alternating between laughing, crying, getting mad. And the mad part was what kind of took over that, you know, here was, you know, the greatest basketball conference in the country. It, it had become that. And yeah. I really think that's sort of why the ACC <laughs> went at, you know, they liked, you know, for all those decades, they were, you know, College basketball was the ACC. You know, it was Duke and Carolina and Georgia Tech and all those schools. So NC State and Virginia. Um, and I don't think that they kind of liked that. At the very least, the Big East could make the argument they were the best. So, you know, they went after some of those schools and had them come over. As we know, football rules the day. Uh, basketball did not win. But the there was nothing better than walking into the garden on the Saturday night for the Big East championship game with Bill Raftery and Jay Billis and just the vibe and the buzz and the whole thing. It's uh, that was absolutely the best. And I missed that a lot. And I missed yeah, the it was, rivalry. Too. It was awesome. It was must see. It was must see TV. Sean, yeah. I, I was meaning to ask you, when did you first get the Red Sox job? How old were you? Um, do you have time? Well, we're, we're this is most of this is not going to be on uh, zoom as you and I are, but, I was going to show you a prop because I have a newspaper clipping from that somewhere in my little home office. I was 25 years old. Wow. 1988. So you can do the math. I'm 60. Uh, That's crazy. Yeah, I was 25. Yeah, it was fun. You know, I was, I felt like I was ready for it. You know, I felt like I was a deserving candidate. If only because, you know, when I was at Syracuse, 
we had the student radio station had the broadcast rights for the Toronto Blue Jays AAA team, the Syracuse Chiefs. And I did those games for three years. I probably did 400 mm. minor league baseball games, one level below. Now they were on radio, but still doesn't really matter. Um, yeah. But if you look at the resumes of a lot of people broadcasting major league baseball, they never did 400 games in the minors. So, um, so, and then I came to Nesson as it was just starting out and did a lot of college sports for them. And I started working at channel 38, which was the rights holder for the Red Sox. So, you know, I was hopeful that I would get it, even though I was young, you know, I thought I had the resume and I was sort of the in-house candidate. And, you know, there was speculation that my dad, uh, helped me get it. As a matter of fact, the headline in the Herald was where there's a will, there's a way. <laughs> really? Which wasn't a great way. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but Dan Berkery, the legendary, uh, Massachusetts broadcasting hall of famer was a general manager at the time, uh, said that it actually took him two months to decide to hire me because that was to him a negative that he knew people were going to say that and that he didn't really know my dad. And, you know, it was, he said to me many times, this is the most important thing on our station. It's the highest rated thing. You know, it's my, my job is largely dependent on the rating and the revenue generation and the advertising. So I don't care who your dad is. I'm not putting some kid on there if I don't think you're, you're the right person to do it. So I really owe Dan, uh, a lot of my whatever success I've had because, you know, I wound up getting on ESPN a year or two later, a year later, because the executives at ESPN, most of them live in Connecticut and they would get the Red Sox games on their TV. So they watched me on there and apparently they thought I was all right. And they offered me the opportunity to come there and do some stuff for them. So, you know, it's one thing leads to another. The Chiefs led to the Red Sox opportunity, which led to ESPN and CBS. So. But Dan Berkery is a hugely important person to me and still is. We keep in touch. He's retired on the Cape and is one of the best people I know, in addition to being a legendary TV person. Yeah. And you guys had some rough, rough years with the Red Sox then. And then they started turning around and like winning all these World Series. And so yeah, I, I was thinking it was bizarre world at the beginning. You know, I kind of stepped into the, you know, Wade Boggs stuff and then, um, you know, Morgan Magic, that was fun. And, you know, it was, uh, we had the Butch Hobson era at the beginning. So <laughs> there were some interesting days. But, um, and then unfortunately, I kind of, you know, went out just as this was starting. You know, um, my last season on the TV side was the year they broke the 86 year curse, if that's what you want to call it. So uh, was there for one of them, but um, then rode off into the sunset. Yeah, one of the ballsiest trades of all time, getting rid of Nomar. I know obviously it was a problem, but you bring in Orlando Cabrera and Doug Mankiewicz, like a late inning guy to come in and play first base to relieve Millar and Cabrera. I mean, he was really good for them in the postseason run too, but I just remember how bad that's, like I was growing up, I remember how bad that Nomar situation was getting at that yeah, point. And I, that I think, you know, and, and I really come to like Nomar now. Um, you know, we worked together after he retired, did a college world series and spent some time together. And, um, you know, I've been in touch once or twice since he played my charity golf tournament. The, uh, you know, I've come to like him now, but he was not an easy guy to be around at that time. And you know, I remember walking into the clubhouse when the, the trade had been made and, you know, that's when all the, whatever they call themselves, the idiots, whatever that, that's when that yeah. started. That's, it was like the, a cloud had lifted and, you know, everybody else was free to have a good time. So I do think people say, well, 
chemistry and baseball, karma, whatever, camaraderie doesn't really matter. Remember the old Oakland A's teams in the 70s? They used to fight in the clubhouse and then they go out and kick everybody's butt. Well, it, I really do think it matters. You know, I think there, there's a, a vibe, you know, and you were around it, but you know, the, when the Red Sox won the world series a few years ago with Alex, you know, the, it was just kind of the positivity the whole year that you, you're waiting for the inevitable good thing to happen. And it, it happened for them the whole year. And then there are other seasons when you just know they're going to blow this lead. You know, this is not you know, so, uh, yeah, it kind of seems to vary season by season, but I am a big believer that kind of attitude and, uh, you know, even when Alex came back after the one year, you know, with essentially the same team that was dreadful. And, you know, I felt bad for Ron Renicky, but the, you know, yeah. the, <laughs> those, those 39 million pitchers that he had, none of whom <laughs> belonged in the major leagues, uh, probably was not a big help. And he's a good guy too. But, you know, I think there, Alex just brings that certain something that he has. Yeah. One of my favorite things about Ron Renneke, and I'm with you, I felt bad for the guy, right? Like he was not supposed Wonderful to be in that guy. And a, yeah. You know, they like to say a great, you know, good baseball man. He's a really good baseball man. He's as knowledgeable as anybody. Yeah. I remember yeah, when I mean, we could sit here and I know with your memory, you could probably rattle off every one of those pitchers <laughs> who pitched that season. Yeah. And, you know, the Dylan Covey and uh, whoever else they own. Dylan Covey, that's like one of his finest moments, Ron Renneke. So Dylan Covey goes out there and he keeps him in there for like two innings. So after the game, Ron Renneke's asked, hey, did you just pitch him because he was going to the alternate site? And he said, yeah, we we knew we weren't going to use him the next couple of days. That's why we kept him in the game. He yeah, just admitted it. Yeah, and season was like that. I yeah. remember some of the games on the radio, like, who is this guy? Where did he come from? <laughs> he had a 6.92 ERA with Philadelphia and got released and now he's here. You know, it's like... It was- <laughs> A, a season full of that. So, yeah, Ron Renneke was not really uh, uh, given a really fair hand to play there. But yeah, but that anyway. twenty that twenty twenty one season was like magical when Cora came back. Obviously, they didn't win it. They end up losing to the Astros. But you had some crazy moments in that race series. Remember, like the ball went off Renfro's leg and over the fence, and we're trying to figure out like what I, I didn't, never seen that in my life. I'm like, what what is actually because it. It hit the wall, came back, hit Renfro, and went out of the park. So we're trying to figure out what happened there. And obviously, you had the the wild card game, which was insane. And remember, um, Jerry Remy comes out, your old partner comes out right before the game, throws the first pitch, X out there with it. I'm, I'm, I'm like, at that point, there's no way they're losing this game when no. Remy's coming back, considering what he was going through at that time. It was yeah, just, I think that was a magical did. night. Um, I certainly did. I think anybody who, you know, was close to Jerry knew that that was goodbye, right? That his, uh, you know, I had talked to him, it was however long it was, 11 or 12 years that he kind of battled uh, cancer. And I had talked to him many, many times over then. And he was always um, positive and optimistic, even though he went through some really, really rough times. You know, he was convinced that the treatments were going to work or the doctors were giving him reason to be optimistic. And then, you know, as we approached that night, um, you know, he, the whole conversation was different. So I think a lot of us knew that was going to be it. And, uh, yeah, so it was yeah. fitting that they won. You yeah, know, he, it was an, it was an awesome game. He didn't game like too. the Yankees. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. And now X leave in the booth. Yeah. That's a shame too. I understand why he did it. I, I admire him for doing it. You know, as you know, Brian, you know, a lot of these guys, uh, and now women too, um, no one ever walks away. What, what was Vin Scully in his nineties when he, or eighties yeah. or something. And Ernie Harwell went, uh, I think into well into his eighties and, um, 
you know, we have out in Phoenix, Al McCoy does the Phoenix Suns games. I think he's 85 or 86. So, you know, it's, uh, it's the kind of job you can do for a long time if you keep your fastball. And so, and it's fun, right? And so, and there's the ego component of it for some that, you know, they, it's, there are too many people, I think, in our business who don't walk away because it's too much of a sense of who they are. You know, like, this is who I am. Yeah. Um, as soon as I think I have enough money to get me to the finish line, um, you're, <laughs> you're not going to see me in a booth again. You know, <laughs> we probably get one shot at this. Who knows? But uh, yeah, I'd like to go see whatever. Australia, New Zealand, the Great Wall of China, you know, wherever else. Well, we probably won't be going to China anytime soon now that we're knocking balloons out of the sky. But, yeah. um, <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, I don't, I don't have the desire to be doing this when I'm 75 or 80 years old. So, but something I don't, you know, doesn't mean people who do are bad people. It's just, yeah. you know, I don't yeah, want to die in it a is. booth. It is interesting too with Eck, like because clearly he still has a passion for baseball. Like this guy knows everybody on all the other teams in Major League Baseball. Like I'm convinced he just goes home from the games at night and starts watching like the Dodgers. Oh, he does. Or the, he, he does. He does or did. I don't know if he'll continue to do that now that he's not doing this. And uh, you know, I think he probably would have continued. And I don't know this for sure if his family was here, but you mm-hmm. know, his uh, grandchildren are on the West Coast, so you know, it's. Uh, not like you can play with your grandkids in the morning or the early afternoon and go to Fenway from the Bay Area, wherever they live. So, uh, but he was terrific. I loved, uh, you know, I loved everything about him. You know, just the, as you said, the preparation. I love the candor. You know, a lot of guys are afraid uh, because they're, I think, afraid of offending somebody or losing their job of being honest about what they see on the field. He wasn't. And uh, and then there was the colorful part of it, too, that made it fun. You know, his unique lingo and his interaction with the people he worked with. And, you know, you got to know him around Fenway Park. Just a really, really good guy, too. You know, he's been through a lot in his life. And uh, I admire him a great deal. Yeah, had his own language. Pair of shoes. It's like, who the hell would say something like that besides Eck? Like, yeah, <laughs> nobody. Own baseball and, lingo. And then nobody else can now, because if you do, you sound like you're you know imitating him, which is. Yeah. The worst thing you can do as a broadcaster. I mean, when I talk to the students at Newhouse up at our alma mater at Syracuse or other broadcasting students, that's one of the things I always say when they ask for advice is don't imitate somebody else. You know, be yourself. You don't want to have people listen to the game. This guy sounds like he's imitating Joe Castiglione. You know, it's uh, be, be yourself. Yeah. So, hey, you called that game yesterday, the Bruins and the Capitals. And before the game, you guys are going through, you have the graphic up there where basically points out they're on pace to have the most points in NHL history, the most wins in NHL history. Like it's crazy what this team has been able to do, but now they're actually like the first time all season, they've hit like a little bit of a rough patch. They've lost four or five, the power play. Now they're oh for their last 17. That's been a real issue for them lately. So, I mean, should we be worried about this team, Sean? Like I heard Bouchagras in the, in the, uh, after the game, say, hey, do we do we need to uh, make a coaching change now? Like yeah, joking that around. That was a very funny line. You know, <laughs> yeah. it's, uh, and Bucci's a funny guy with a great passion and knowledge for hockey. And, you know, like me and Steve Levy and Linda Cohn, you know, he was one of those people who's been at ESPN forever, hoping that hockey would come back. And it did. You know, I, I think, you know, A, it was probably unreasonable to expect they're going to maintain that pace. I mean, I yeah. I don't think it's panic time by any stretch because I think, 
you know, the reason they built the record they did is that they're really, really good. You know, they're uh, at every level. You know, I mentioned on the air yesterday, David Quinn is one of my closest friends, now the coach at San Jose. He actually interviewed for the Bruins job uh, this past summer. And, um, you know, when they were here a couple of weeks ago at the Garden and played them, he said, you know, they're, there's no weak link. You know, they're, they put out four really good lines. And not just solid lines. I mean, a lot of the guys are great players. You know, the Pasternak's and Bergeron still magnificent. And, you know, Krejci's been a great addition. And Marshand is terrific. You know, I don't have to go through the whole thing. And then on defense, the same thing. You know, they have two stars, in my opinion, um, in Lindholm and, uh, and McAvoy. And then everybody else is at least solid, if not better. And, you know, a couple of them, Clifton comes to mind, Grizzly, to, are really thriving under this new Jim Montgomery system who encouraged them to get involved in the offense. It's amazing how many times, you know, they're on a rush up the ice and the defenseman is either leading it all the way toward the net or the defenseman's charging toward the net while somebody else is carrying the puck along the wing. So um, I think they're totally legit. You know, I think the goaltending is solid. Um, Allmark's been a revelation. I hope he can continue to do that. I don't think they're going to set those records. I mean, it's, uh, yeah. you know, that to have to stay on that pace for an entire year would be, and I don't think they really care that much about it. You know, we asked Jim Montgomery yesterday and we visited him before the game. He said, yeah, it'd be great to set those records, but we're not going to go for it at the expense of what we really want to do, which is win the Stanley cup. And if you're going to do that, it probably makes sense down the road to rest guys like Bergeron and, you know, even Allmark. you know, they, he's, uh, he's going to start many more games than he ever did before. Jim told us yesterday, they wanted to end up no more than between 48 and 51 starts. So mm. um, I think you'll see more Swayman, which is fine. Swayman's terrific. But yeah. um, I do think they're, you know, if they're not the best team in the NHL, they're one of the two or three. But I think Carolina's really good. Um, Tampa's always dangerous. Um, you know, I think the Rangers are good enough that they could win a Stanley Cup. But, uh, but you know, I think they're going to have – the Bruins will have a deep run in the playoffs. Yeah, those two teams you mentioned, though, Carolina, they just lost to them recently. They lost to Tampa recently, too. Carolina does scare me based on going back to last year. Obviously, the Bruins are a better team, but I would say those are the two teams that I'd be the most worried about in the East. And in all likelihood, they're going to have to play Tampa in the second round if Tampa gets by Toronto. Toronto. Yeah, which, and Toronto's really good, too. I mean, yeah. one of these years, they're going to win uh, a playoff series. Um, you know, it's kind of typical of their luck, right? They're going to wind up against Tampa Bay again, but the, the really talented Tampa team who has the best goalie in the, in the world. I know Shesterkin, you know, he was the best goalie last year and he was a big reason why the Rangers kind of went like this. Um, I think if he played that way for my buddy, David Quinn, he'd still be the coach of the New York Rangers, but <laughs> that's a story for another time. Um, but, uh, but the best goalie, I mean, if, if you, I think asked just about every GM or coach in the NHL who, if you could pick any goalie in the league, Almost everyone would take Vasilevsky, right? So as long as right. Tampa, him, he's going to be, uh, you know, they're going to be dangerous. And then, you know, they have a terrific team around him too. So the playoffs, you know, there's nothing better than the NHL playoffs and they're going to be awesome. And it's going to be super fun here. You know, I do think uh, if I were the Bruins, I'd make a move. Now I know they're going to get to prospect of like yesterday. The thing that jumped out at me was Craig Smith's on the first line. And he has three goals, but, and I'm saying, well, right. But then you have to remember, well, depressed is going to be back. Right. So yeah. I think that'll help. I, I think it'd be helpful if Taylor Hall kind of gets it back together. He, he's one of those up and down guys. And, and right now he's in a, in a funk, but uh, yeah. 
So, you know, hopefully, hopefully he snaps out of it, but, um, but there's not a lot of, you're saying like, what would you fix? Yeah. I don't know what you'd fix. Yeah. Like you go back to last year, it's like they had basically been looking for another top tier defenseman since the end of the Chara era here, so to speak, when Chara was getting old, they wanted another guy that could be like on McAvoy's level. And it took them a while to find that guy, but they did with Lindholm. A couple of years ago, you mentioned Taylor Hall, who's struggling now. They make the trade for him. 19, it was Charlie Coyle, who played a big role in that cup run. So like Don Sweeney, he's taken a lot of criticism over the years. I think a lot of it goes back to his like 2015 draft where he didn't draft Barzell and he drafted the three guys before him. Like he gets it. It's draft like this happens. You miss a long time ago. Yeah. You know, there it's a very inexact science. And I think he had just been thrown into it. Right. I don't know how long he He just got the job. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, there's, there's also that. Right. I'm not, you know. I'm sure he would admit, you know, if he had to do over again, you'd do it over again. But, you know, you could play that game. I mean, you know, in any sport, in any draft, you know, why did all these teams not pick Mahomes? How did Giannis Antetokounmpo wound up being the whatever he was, 19th pick or something? Uh, Yeah, Jokic in the second round. (laughs) Exact science. But I'm glad you mentioned that because, you know, I was one of those people when they fired Bruce Cassidy, I was like, what are they doing? You know, he's like, very well-regarded coach, six years in a row in the playoffs, unbelievable winning percentage. And with uh, when you watch that team play last year, you know they were a one-and-a-half line team. I mean, they got nothing from the third and fourth lines. But I think yeah. that's one of the reasons why Cam, Neely, and Donnie wanted to make the coaching change because they thought there was more there and the defenseman could be more involved in the in the rush, especially with the kind of defensemen that they have. So, um, and I just think the, the message, you know, six years, Bruce, a very direct guy, which is why people like you and I in the media like him. And I think he's a really good guy, but you know, we've all heard the scuttlebutt that I just think he really wore some guys out. And I think there's a much happier uh, positivity mojo around that team now that has for Jim Montgomery's relentlessly positive, which uh, he's a fun guy to be around. And I think Bruce wound up, I always say all the time, God has a plan for our lives, right? Bruce wound up in the perfect place for him. Vegas, you know, Vegas had a playoff caliber team last year. To me, they were the best, most talented team that missed the playoffs. And their season was a mess. So he brings structure. He brings effort. He brings accountability. And look what happened. I mean, they're better. Now they wobbled a little bit, but they've had some injuries. So I think it worked out great for everybody. And, uh, but when you look at this Bruins team, how could you argue that, you know, that Don Sweeney has done a good job? Right. <laughs> right. Like, it's like, I mean, yeah. even things that look little like the, the third and fourth lines are better. A.J. Greer, you know, he was almost the entire year in Utica last year, in the Devils organization. He's been a good player. You know, he's made the fourth line better. Yeah. Zach, you know, I was never a huge Eric Hall fan. Um, Look at that trade. You know, it's kind of like, well, we'll trade you our guy who's okay for your guy who's okay. Well, Zach has been much better than okay to the point where they just gave him a, a four-year extension, I think, for 19 million bucks. So, you know, you go around Lindholm. This is a shameless name drop, but the it's not really the we did a game Thursday last Thursday night in uh, Tampa. They played Colorado. Scotty Bowman comes to a lot of the Tampa Bay Lightning home games because he lives in Sarasota. And it's always the, he comes by the booth all the time. And it's still the strangest thing to me when you turn around uh, to leave the booth and there's Scotty Bowman standing there. And he always introduces himself. Like, you don't know who he is, right? It's like, you turn around and you're gonna, I'm looking at the greatest person who's ever done this, right? 
So we got talking and uh, he's friendly with Jim Montgomery because Jim's from Montreal and they have a connection. Montgomery actually uh, amplified what Scotty Bowman said, that they actually talk fairly regularly, which is a great resource, obviously, for Jim. And Scotty Bowman said, when I watched, and he watches all the games all the time, and, and he said, when I watch the Bruins, the guy who stands out to me the most over and over again is Hampus Lindholm. It's, you know, and Hampus Lindholm is a tremendous player. So, you know, I think Donnie Sweeney just that's a pretty good trade when you look back at it. And they signed yeah. him to the long-term extension. So, you know, when you look at a team that doesn't have many weak links, who put that team together? Yeah, now, don't you, now I, mean, I understand what people are, you, you know, they should have got rid of you and not Bruce Cassidy. But I think once people got over that and realized, you know what, maybe it was time for his change as successful as they were, however you define success. Um, you know, I think Don and, and Cam deserve some credit. Yeah, it is crazy because that was the narrative. Like, hey, Bruce Cassidy's not the guy that should have gone. It should have been Don Sweeney. And look, Bruce Cassidy, as you said, he's doing a really good job and it was just probably time for a change. I don't think it's a coincidence that DeBrusque is having his best year and that Krejci came back over. Like, I, I think these yeah, things are... Bergeron didn't retire, you know? Yeah, like, uh, I think these things are connected. I mean, you can go... Clifton's having his best year, right? Um, there, there are several other guys. Uh, Frederick, I mean, they've, you know, they've been waiting for Frederick for several years now yeah. uh, as a first round pick, he's having his best year. You know, yesterday when I was sitting at this desk doing my nose again right for the game, you know, you went down the line. He already has a career high in points or he's three away from his career high in points. You know, it's uh, a lot of these guys are having their, their best year. And I think part of that is uh, the style of play and that these guys feel free to be a great, you know, like yesterday, they were too free, too creative, shoot the puck. Yeah. You know, they really overpassed, and I wasn't surprised when I woke up this morning and read, you know, the post-game comments from the players that they said that. You know, it's just they had too many guys in too many great spots to shoot it who passed it to somebody who was not in as good a spot. So, you know, but it's a one-off, I think. I think they have a terrific team, still the favorite to win the Cup, and but I don't think they're going to get to 62 wins. And you almost – I don't even know if you want them to have the highest point total because I think I had the research notes yesterday. The last seven – President's Trophy winners, you know, for the most points in the regular season. I don't think they've made it past the second round. You know, Florida last year make it past the second round. They had 120 points. So, you know, it's for whatever reason, you know, the Tampa Bay, when they had the 62 wins the other day, I mean, a couple of years ago, lost in four straight to Columbus in the first round. Yeah, so, that was you know, that was the 19 run for the Bruins, right? Where they got, yeah. they, they didn't have to play That's Tampa. That's one of the reasons the Bruins got there is Tampa yeah. Bay cleared out you know and then everything kind of fell the Bruins way I don't think they were that great and I don't think St. Louis was that great and it was kind of like the accidental final and that's what was so frustrating about okay well this may never unfold this way again you're here and then they lose game seven um but uh what can you do I was there I remember walking out of the game I was sitting in the stands a couple things struck me that I remember looking over at Mike Emmerich thinking, wow, wouldn't it be cool to call Game 7 of the Stanley Cup Final? In an atmosphere like that, I mean, I'm sure a lot of your listeners were there, some were there, and it was just, I've been to a million sporting events, and it was so alive in there. And then um, I remember when they lost, walking out, it was very quiet, as you might expect, and you're kind of taking the escalator down at the TD Garden, and a woman says, you know, good, good for St. Louis. They've never won. We've won a lot, the Patriots, the Bruins, and everybody was like, shut up. <laughs> Nobody wanted to hear that because you, know, yeah. you don't get that many chances to get that close. And, I, you know, you think of how the narrative 
with history would have been different for Tuka Rask in particular, for Bruce Cassidy, um, who I think should still be remembered very, very fondly in the history of the Bruins, both of them. But, you know, it's it, their legacy would have been even better, obviously, had that they won that night. Yeah. And you just think back to that 19 team. I felt like at the and I give them a ton of credit for this now because I felt like after that, OK, it's probably it for this core. Right. And then they come back the next season before COVID. They were the best team in the NHL. Now, when they went to the bubble, they just were not the same team anymore. And then even after last season, they lost to Carolina. And I'm thinking, how good is this team going to be coming into the yeah, season? Yeah, that was a tough seven game series, right? Brian? Yeah. But you didn't, you know, oh, if only they won this series, they're going to win the Stanley Cup. You know, I, I never felt that. OK, they'll get to the next round. But, you know, yeah. uh, the Rangers were great. The Lightning were great. You know, you know I, I didn't if they got past that round. They're just and a lot of it was what we talked about before. They're just they were too dependent on the top line and a half. And uh, now they're not as dependent. So I think I think that's going to help. But you still wonder about the window. I mean, Bergeron's not going to yeah. be here forever. Uh, Krejci's not going to be here forever. And Marshand is uh, closer to the end than the beginning, obviously. So uh, it sounds like they're going to tie up pasta for a long time. And isn't that a great idea? You know, yeah, you, get that thing done. <laughs> You have. Yeah. I know he's got like the unbelievable agent, right? Like the Scott Boris of the NHL. But I mean, come on, like, let's get this thing done by now. But yeah, so well, I, I think they're close. All the scuttlebutt around the All-Star game was that, it, uh, you know, I think they're super close. And, you know, the we're not going to have another uh, Mookie Betts oh. situation. It's, oh, uh, man. Oh, so I, I got to ask you a lot of hours on a certain radio station <laughs> here in the hub of the universe talking about that. But uh yeah, of all well, the things in my lifetime that uh, all the moves the teams here made or didn't make, the letting Mookie Betts go virtually for nothing. And say, you know, to let him go for whatever, I don't care. You know, they should have worked it out to have him stay. That'll, no matter what happens for the Red Sox going forward, that is always going to be one of the biggest mistakes in the history of the franchise, in my opinion. Yeah, you don't think they got good value for that in return? Alex Verdugo? Are any of them still here? <laughs> Connor Wong? Alex Just, is still here. Is anybody Jeter, else still here? Jeter Downs got DFA'd. He got DFA'd. Yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, this guy was one of the main pieces in a Mookie Betts trade, and he's not even with the organization anymore. It's in, it's yeah, embarrassing. Like, they would have... Sean, good. just from like a PR but perspective... they never should have made the trade. Find yeah. a way to make and they well, uh, but, but, you know, they've never really kind of come out and said, well, he told us he wasn't going to come no matter what. Oh, or, you know, we offered him X and that's as high as we could go. How many times in your lifetime, my lifetime in the history of sports has the, the, a guy not stayed with the team that offered him the most money? Not many. You know, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. It doesn't <laughs> usually the list. Yeah, it doesn't usually work that way, but yeah, it's yeah. In- and, and and the reason I thought of Mookie when we're talking about pasta is it was more than he's a heck of a player, right? Some guys are tremendous players. They're not necessarily that much fun to watch, even in a season where your team isn't that good. Well, we can still go watch Mookie Best. We can still, you know, he played with a passion for the game that was palpable with a style. He was great at every facet of the game, in the field, running the bases, obviously at the plate. With great guy in the community and pasta is the same, right? You, you'd go to the Bruins game. He's going to do stuff every night that gets your attention, you know? So, yeah. and he plays with a smile and he loves being here. He's also great in the community. And, um, you know, so can we please, can we please keep, you know, an athlete who 
is fun to watch and is a great player and likes being here. And uh, so, and I think they will. Yeah, and any other year, he'd probably win the Hart Trophy. It's just like McDavid is running away with it right now. I mean, he's McDavid the... McDavid is crazy good. You know, we at the All-Star game, they brought in a handful of players. The two days before the game, we had a little uh, room in the hotel where they brought in some players. We had a camera and shot a couple sound bites and that sort of thing. But, you know, you're talking to them when they're walking in the room, walking out of the room. And we asked almost every single one of them about McDavid. And the answer was the same. Like Nathan McKinnon said, not only is he great, he is so much better than anybody else. Like me, every other all-star here, like he's in a totally separate category. He said, you know, you kept hearing words like it's insane. It's crazy. It's whatever to describe his skill set and talent and how much better he is than everybody else. So yeah, it, you're right. Pasternak. In any other, you know, if McDavid lived on another planet, um, Jack Hughes. I mean, there are a lot of really yeah. good MVP candidates in another year, another situation uh, would win the Hart Trophy. But unless something happens to McDavid, you know, he's not going to slump. And I, you know, you'd, you'd hate to see him get hurt. So unless something happened, um, I can't see anybody else winning that. Yeah. And like he has to put up the numbers that he does on that team. Like <laughs> if it's oh, not yeah. him and dry side, they're in like major hey, trouble. Part of that's the old, is it the best player? Is it the most valuable player? He's both. Yeah. <laughs> he's uh, he's the best player. And you, you take him off Edmonton. They're they're battling with Arizona and, you know, some of these other teams in the Anaheim. And, you know, they're, they're dramatically different team. Not anywhere near as good without him. And All John right, so Cooper, you know, we were talking about. When we had Tampa last week, we were talking about Braden Point. I had sat in the stands two nights before because San Jose was playing there. So I uh, sat with Coach Quinn's wife, Terry, and uh, watched the Sharks play. And in the stands, as a, you know, when you're not on the 19th floor of the building in the broadcast booth, looking down at people who look like ants, you can actually <laughs> see the game. Um, he, uh, he is so good, Braden Point. I mean, he just, every time he came on the ice. So I said something to Cooper about it, John Cooper, two nights later before the game that we did against Colorado, I said, you know, sitting in the stands the other night gave me even more of an appreciation of point. And he said, there are very few guys who can do exceptional things at high pace. You know, some guys can skate like hell, but they can't, you know, they can't do anything with it. They can't dangle through guys. And that McDavid can, obviously, Braden Point can. There are a couple others, but not many. But uh, yeah, McDavid's... uh, we need to appreciate him because he's, uh, you know, he's, I always say Bobby Orr is the greatest hockey player I've ever seen. And I will probably die saying that. But, um, you know, to me, McDavid's going to be in the conversation and probably wow. sooner rather than later, even though he's 26 years old, whatever he is. Yeah, it seems like we're going to be like at a point where, like with Jordan in the 90s, where it's like, okay, like maybe one year they just give it to somebody else, the MVP, that maybe mm. Jordan should have won it. Like you get tired of voting for him, but it, it feels like you're not going to have like even a choice to not give it to McDavid anymore. Like with the trajectory he's on and the numbers, he just keeps getting better every year. All right, Sean. So before I let you go, since you mentioned the Red Sox, I got to ask, did, did you get to see any of the video that came out of Heim Bloom getting booed at? What's basically winter weekend for the team, like a celebration. He's actually yeah, getting booed. I did. I actually right sitting right here where I am now in my little home office. You know, I'll give Nesson credit because I didn't see it live. But, you know, they re-air the whatever they call that weekend, you know, the weekend in Springfield. And it was quite a production. I never realized they I know they do these winter things and there's a tradition out in Springfield. They've done it a lot. But um, 
you know, I'll give Nesson credit owned by the Red Sox. They didn't edit that out. Right. I had heard about it. I hadn't seen it. And then it came on. So I started watching it and I'm thinking, you know, and they're introducing, uh, and it wasn't just Heim, it was the owners. I think it was yeah, Henry John Henry. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, so they walk out and, you know, it wasn't a smattering of boots, as you know, I mean, it was, it was audible <laughs> and then some and credit to Nesson and to the Red Sox owners for not saying, Hey, you know, haven't edited that out. I mean, it, they left it in there. So I think it's a statement. It's, uh, and it's not just here. I think it's owners of just about every team around the country and every sport. If they stepped into a, what have you done for me lately situation? And I think people are, all of us are very grateful for what they have done, you know, to win the four championships. But when the perception becomes, and you're a diehard fan, like the people were there that day, we're not sure you care as much as you used to. But we're not sure that you're spending as much as you used to, which we know it, that part of it isn't really true. Right. They're spending plenty of money. They just haven't always spent it very well. Um, but, but when that's the perception, people are going to let you know, like, this is not acceptable. You know, if, if you're not going to continue to try and you're not going to continue to keep our best players, this is the response that we're going to have. So I wasn't surprised by it. Um, you know, you and I hear it in our jobs, walking around, people are, are frustrated. And um, this season will be interesting. You know, the Red Sox have had a history, you know, in recent years of when you don't think they're going to be particularly good. You know, we talked about coming out of the Ron Renneke year. I don't think there were overly high expectations the next year. And we talked about what happened. So who knows? They have a million ifs that all have to go their way. Yeah. To, I think to have a good year, especially in the division they're in. But we've seen stranger things so who knows i do like some of the moves that they made and i don't have as big a problem with the xander bogarts thing like mookie Betts, as i said earlier i could live a thousand lifetimes would never try to defend that but xander i understand i would have understood it more if they said you know what we think correa or dansby swanson or one or two of the other you know premier shortstop trade turner they're better than he is, or, you know, they're younger or they're whatever. So we need to, you know, lose the sentimental value attached to Xander, which I understand he's a great guy. I mean, Joe yeah. Stigley, I'm still crying for crying out loud. So it's, uh, <laughs> hey, he's know. got the booth named after him though. He'll be all yeah, right. He, Joe can do whatever he wants. You know, there's, there's nobody better than Joe on or off the air. Um, and, you know, but I understand that when you know Xander, that there's that, you know, want to see him go, you know, he's, a, he's a, what anybody would want in a player on their team, you know, as a person. And, uh, but I, I could understand the argument. Okay. We're not going to spend the money on him, but we're going to go spend it on X, Y, or Z. So that didn't happen. What I do think is interesting. Um, you know, one of the ifs, like I'm intrigued by Mondesi, right? I mean, if, if he can still run and has range in the field and if he's going to play, you know, then that's a, that's a potential wow you know we kind of stumbled into something here so we yeah shall well see. this my biggest issue with the bogarts thing was not that they didn't match the money that the padres got but why did you keep telling us he was your top priority when we we all knew that you signed trevor's story to basically replace him and we were all proven correct in our assessment of that so why did you keep saying that he was the number one priority i don't know and then their number one target outside of the organization was jose abreu and they're like 30 million dollars well, well, off yeah. Well, the, I would defend the first part if I said, what were they supposed to say? You know, true, uh, true. We, yeah. Thanks. And, uh, 
and we can't wait for him to get out of here. There's no way we're spending <laughs> that kind of money. You know, it's yeah, you may have caught me there. Time to go on his deal. Yeah. And I don't think they thought he stunk. Yeah. Or he, you know, he was still a fine player. Um, yeah. But I do think to commit that kind of money to a guy at his age, you know, I, I as you, we both know he's not, you know, he doesn't have great range in the field. That's yeah. not going to get better. Um, so, you know, uh, I, yeah, I just, I understand what you're saying. Yeah, it's our top priority. And then he, yeah. he leaves. It's our top priority. But in any well, business, it, right, you have to value the worth of whatever. And I just think they thought that the price got beyond what they thought he was worth. Yeah. And I'll tell you what I'm excited about, Sean, is, and I talked to Alex Square. I had him on the podcast like a week and a half or two weeks ago. He was on. And I was saying, it must be nice for you to know, like, you have actual guys that you can come out of the bullpen with, right? Like, they got a real closer, which they haven't had for a couple of years. They got they get a guy in Chris Martin who walked the fewest guys from a percentage standpoint in all of baseball last year, right? And the guy that He's he was no going Jake to... Jake <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> like, we don't have to deal with the Jake Diekmans. Sal Amora. And I don't even know, like, Sal Amora, he, he's not even in Major League Baseball anymore. He left. I don't think he would have been able to pitch this if year because of the new back, rules. I would have stopped announcing the games. Because <laughs> the combination of the performance and the pace at which he did it, you know, you I, I, you really just wanted to scream, throw the flipping ball. You know, I mean, it I just... But I wouldn't be in any big hurry to, you know... When you know it's probably not going to go well, why are you in a big rush to have the inevitable bad thing? Plus, he was the king, and it used to drive, you know, as you know, Joe Castiglione is relentlessly positive. But, you know, if you listen yeah. closely, every now and then you can tell when he doesn't like something. And he would always hammer home the point about Salamora has given up the most, in, you know, let the most inherited runners score, you know, because he always had a good ERA. Like, how is his yeah. ERA three point something, two or something, when all these guys keep crossing the plate? And he was the king of let everybody else's runners in and then not let any more in. So yeah, the bullpen should be a lot better. And that'll, that'll be a, a huge, if it, you know, if it is, they'll be better. Cause that was a huge part of why they weren't there last year. Yeah. You're completely right on the Sal Moore thing though. Anytime there was a runner on base and he came into the game, that guy was scoring. It was like yeah. a 75% chance that that guy was going to score. He was so bad Absolutely. when in those situations. All right. That is the great Sean McDonough. Sean, thanks so much for the time, man. I really appreciate it. It's a ton of fun. Yeah, thank you, Brian. Always good to be with you, buddy. I'm happy for all of your well-deserved success and uh, keep being awesome. Thanks, Sean. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Great stuff there from my buddy Sean McDonough. A lot of cool stories from Sean. That is crazy. He called those Blue Jays World Series games. So a lot of great stuff from Sean. And just as a quick aside, I do really miss the old Big East basketball. I don't know why I was thinking about that this weekend, but I really do. It was like, it used to be must-see TV. Now it's like college basketball. And I get it, we're a pro sports town, but it doesn't really register here like it used to. All right, so we do want to get to the new email line. So if you do want to email us, that email address is pike at gmail.com. Again, very easy, pike at gmail.com. So you've heard his name before, but now you get to hear him on the podcast, Jamie McClellan, our big-time producer here. He's got the email, so he's got to read them to me, and we'll react to these. What's going on, Jamie? You nervous? Like, don't fuck it up, man, all right? I know, I know. First chance. Here we go. <laughs> all right, who do we got first? We got Andy in Watertown. He says, hey, Brian, we're entering the season of draft prognosticating. Always are with Belichick in the past. I'm wondering if they'll be more predictable with Kraft flexing his muscles a bit more and Bill O'Brien back in the picture. The fun pick would be a receiver, but we should probably take a tackle early on. We used to count on Skarnekia coaching up mid-round picks, but we can't do that anymore. So we may have to play it safe and get one in an early round. Matt could sure use some more time in the pocket. What do you think? 
Yeah, so first of all, from the receiver angle, I rather them do that via trade, right? Where it's like a proven commodity. And I'm not one of these people, Jamie, that's like with the Patriots and receivers, like since they haven't drafted them well in the past, don't do it. That's not my point. My point is that this receiving class is like weak as weak as it's been in years. Like we've been seeing a million receivers get into the NFL and be very productive, not a great receiver class. So I'd rather do that via trade. We talked about this last week, maybe Jerry Judy, T Higgins, these type of guys. So I'd rather do that in terms of actually trying to predict what the Patriots are going to do. It's insane, right? Like I mean, last year they traded up for a guard in Cole Strange or they traded down for Cole Strange. Everyone's like, why the hell are you taking a guard, right? So it wouldn't shock me if they took an offensive lineman because they definitely need a tackle. The other thing is I wouldn't be surprised if they went corner there. Like if they think the best player on the board is a corner, they still have a need at cornerback after this past season. We'll see what they're going to do with Jonathan Jones. He's much better playing inside than outside. So I could see them going. I would say the three biggest needs are corner, tackle, and receiver. I would probably double up on tackle, one in the draft and one in free agency. And then as it pertains to the receiver position, I would trade for that. And if you can get a corner, go ahead and do that as well. But they get a lot of needs, man. It's not a great roster right now. I mean, you got some really nice players, but man, this roster is not great. All right. Who's up next, Jamie? Uh, okay. We got some C stuff. This is from Jesse in Chicago. Uh, hey, Brian, love the show. Listen to every episode. I want your take on Robert Williams' development. Rob is great at everything he does, but I feel like he can be so much more than what he currently is offensively. He has a decent stroke, but never takes the wide open mid-range jumper. He gets like 10 times a game or goes one-on-one in the post. Think 2008, Kevin Garnett. Um, Should Rob be taking more risks offensively? Is it on Missoula to pressure Rob to be more involved in the offense, or is it on Rob himself? Well, he took a th- he took a three today in this Memphis game, Jamie. Did you see that? Yeah, he must have been happy about that. <laughs> I mean, it was an air ball. I, I actually <laughs> still think that hit the rim like they reviewed it. But in terms of his offensive game, like if you look at the Celtics offensive rating when Rob's on the court, it's actually like would be the best in the NBA. So he brings up an element that they don't have in terms of his ability to roll to the hoop. Now, in terms of the mid-range thing, I, I don't think he needs to take more mid-range jumpers. Like what I think he needs to do is and look, he's a very good player obviously number one priority with him is just keep him healthy like just get to the finish line with Robert Williams right but the other thing I would say Jamie is like if you watch Bam play and even Jaron Jackson Jr. who was playing today he bombs threes but these guys these big guys have these little push shots right like from floater range where it's just like it's almost like a little shot put right you see it with Bam he kills the Celtics with it that's the shot that I would say that Robert Williams has to develop more because I just don't really have much faith that he can turn into any sort of a competent jump shooter and there's nothing wrong with that I mean he's an elite defensive player and he's always going to have a super high field goal percentage because he's always dunking he brings him an element that they don't have without him which is that vertical spacing right like who else on this team besides like Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum, you throw in lobs too, right? In terms of the big guys, you don't throw Al Horford lobs. So he brings a different element to the offense. But if I was going to nitpick one thing to add to his game, I would say that little push shot. Yeah, I like that. Definitely snatches up some boards. Yeah, 16 today. Yeah, I know. He was going crazy. Uh, Okay, and this is from Dan. He writes, Brian, I love the show and how often you get up new content. When will you, the media, and the Celtics coaching staff hold Tatum Uh accountable? I know. And putting you on blast. Uh, when will you hold Tatum accountable for his ongoing immaturity issues? He's almost 25 and has been in the league since 2017. Uh, when will he stop complaining to the refs doing bad acting jobs like flailing his arms and trying to show that he got fouled? 
How many times, Metric Man, has Tatum failed to run back on defense when things don't go his way on the offense? Dan is not a Tatum fan, man. Whoa. Hot take. <laughs> so, yeah, I wouldn't call him like, I don't think it's maturity issues. Like, he's a very mature guy for his age, right? Like, I mean, he's still, he's still, he's in his 24-year-old season and he already made it to an NBA Finals. I, I totally understand where he's coming from, though, with the officials, Jamie, because especially like in the postseason last year, it got to be a little too much. And then you get fast breaks the other way. Like, I understand that. And what happens sometimes is this, it's a domino effect, like Grant Williams will start doing. And it's like, Grant, you can't be the player that's complaining to the officials. You're not good enough to do that. So I do understand that. It's frustrating. In terms of flailing the arms, I don't mind that because that's how you draw fouls in the NBA. Watch James Harden play for like two minutes or watch that game against Philadelphia the other night. So I don't mind that whatsoever. In fact, Tatum does this thing now where James Harden's been doing it for years is what he'll do when he gets in the lane is he holds his arms straight out. So he's inviting somebody to try to strip the ball. But every time what happens is somebody hits him on the arm. That's why he gets to the free throw line so many times. So I don't really have an issue in terms of the maturity. Yeah, if you want to complain about the ref stuff, certainly. I mean, I think everybody watching the Celtics game would say, yeah, can you please stop complaining as much as you do? In fact, I bet if you injected Joe Mazzulla with truth serum, he would admit the same thing. Yeah, they complained to the officials too much. It was the same situation last year. So, but I don't think like right now is the time to complain about Tatum complaining to the officials because he's getting to the free throw line a lot more. So some of it has to be working, Jamie. Well said. All right. So that was the first crack at the email box off the pike at gmail.com that's off the pike at gmail.com jamie i think you did a good job man what did you think how would you rate your performance i think room for improvement we'll go b slash b plus maybe that's too high i don't know well since we just busted out i'll give you an a man i thought it was good thought it was good good performance good idea too so if you do want to leave us an email make sure to do so off the pike at gmail.com we'll still take your voicemails as well all right so i do want to get to some of this game from today and just some notes on the buyout market. So if you look at this game today, of course, the Celtics end up beating this Memphis Grizzlies team. Really impressive win. Interesting part of this game. The one thing, if you're going to have an issue with it, is Joe Mazzulla. I still, sometimes I get aggravated, like use the timeout. He waited until Memphis went on that 10-0 run to use the timeout when you could see things were sort of getting ugly there. Memphis started that third quarter on a 15 to two run, right? So it wasn't just that you were outscored seven to nothing. The whole quarter, the Celtics at the beginning there, they weren't doing too much. So again, this is something I think we're going to talk about all season long is being a little bit concerned about Joe Mazzulla's timeout usage. Like it's a real thing. We're not exaggerating it. It's a real thing. And you're going to have to use timeouts when you get to the postseason. So I don't know why he isn't more proactive with that. And the thing that I'll say about that is this is not a young team. Like their whole idea is they want him to play through it. Like Phil Jackson used to do this all the time. Well, the Celtics are not a young team, right? These guys have been to the NBA finals. So just help them. Like it, it, this isn't like a lesson that they need to learn. Just use the timeout. All right. So another impressive thing about this today is you look at what you did against the number two team in the Western Conference in the Memphis Grizzlies. No Jalen, no Brogdon, and no Marcus Smart. So essentially three out of your top four guards were out today and you beat them. And this goes back to what we saw against the Philadelphia 76ers on what Wednesday night when it was no Rob, no Al, no Marcus Smart. And then Jalen Brown had to lead the game with, of course, that facial fracture. So those, these are two really impressive wins. And really, since they lost that game to the Phoenix Suns a week ago Friday, the Celtics have really started to play really good basketball. I mean, they beat the shit out of Charlotte the other night. Not that we're surprised, but they've played much better the past three games or so. One thing that I thought was a little too much, 
they kept talking about the points in the paint on the broadcast like it was this big issue in the game. Like Memphis scores the most points in the NBA in the paint, 59.3 per game, and today they have 60. So they were like at their average pretty much, and they were going nuts on the broadcast about how the Grizzlies were outscoring the Celtics in the paint by a wide margin. The Celtics only end up with 34 points in the paint, but this is who the Celtics are. They're 27th in the NBA in points in the paint at 45.1. So why would we be surprised that there would be a wide margin there? That's not what the Cs do. And the other thing is just look at the made threes in this game, right? The Celtics on the season... Second in the NBA at 15.8. Tonight, they hit 21. Okay, so you get 63 points off your three-pointers compared to Memphis, who had 36. I mean, what would you rather have? The wide gap in points in the paint or on threes? It's obvious, right? So I don't know why they kept bringing that up and kept putting up that graphic. Like, you knew one team doesn't score much in the paint and the other team does. I don't get it. The thing about the Celtics, too, is you do have guys now in Jason Tatum that gets to the free throw line. So it sort of gets like a little misleading when we're talking about the points in the paint. All right, another big thing is the assists have been 34 against Charlotte. The Celtics on the season are at 26.3 a game, which is seventh in the NBA. Most in the NBA is the Golden State Warriors. They're at 29.8. And as we mentioned in that Charlotte game, you're up to 34 and the ball is really flying around. And of course, you're shooting well to get that amount of assists as well. But if you look at it today in terms of the assists, 28. So you're above your season average again. And it just feels like right now, and maybe part of it is you have a bunch of shooters and two playmakers in Derek White and Jason Tatum instead of having a bunch of guys that can break you down off the dribble when we're talking about Jalen and Malcolm Brogdon and Marcus Smart. So because you don't have a lot of guys, and this is like a weird thing to bring up, since you don't have a lot of guys that can actually like make plays, the ball's actually flying around like crazy. So I do, I have enjoyed seeing this. Okay, Tatum, it was a rough afternoon for him. Three for 16 in terms of his shooting, 16 points, seven boards and three assists. But one thing I'll say about Tatum is... Tatum, to me, in this game, down the stretch, he was making the right plays, right? Like, obviously, the box score doesn't look good. He didn't score, or I should say, he didn't have a made field goal in the second half. But to make it 99-91, he finds Derek White for an open three. And then he cuts to the basket, and then he finds Rob, who then finds Al for a wide open three. So that made it 102 to 94. So you're not going to see that in the box score, right? Because Tatum's pass led to the pass. So it just felt like down the stretch, he was making the right moves. And then again, He drove to the basket. He got a double. So then he kicked the ball to Grant, who then swung the ball to Al Horford for an open three to make it 107-97. So he is making the right plays, despite the fact that he didn't shoot the ball well today. And then, I mean, if you go back to the Charlotte game, he had 41. I mean, he was ridiculous. He had 12 free throws in that game, 13 for 21. He was 5 of 10 from deep. And the thing that stuck out to me during that game, and I'll get to Derek White in a second, because obviously he was the story. Maybe that's why. But it felt like it was like a quiet 41. Like all of a sudden you look down and you're like, wait, Tatum has 36 points. Tatum has 30. How did he get to this? Right. It just felt like that game was just very, very easy for him. All right. Now let me get to Derek White because (laughs) Derek White is going absolutely nuts right now. Of course, he hit the big three to give the season 85-84 lead with 10-24 left. He had he drove on Kennard, hangs in the air and gets the N1 to make it 91-87. And then he ends up finding Hauser for an open three, and then he hit a three to make it 99-91, that pass we talked about from Tatum. So big shots down the stretch, big plays down the stretch, 
And I really feel like right now, this sort of his minutes going up because of the injuries today, obviously no Brogdon, no Smart who's been out for a while and no Jalen Brown. We're really seeing Derek White. Like sometimes when you put a lot on a guy's plate, he doesn't play as well, right? You're like, oh yeah, now we understand why he's considered to be the third or the fourth best guard on the team. But no, it's been the opposite with Derek White. I mean, you go back to that Charlotte game the other day, maybe his best game ever. I mean, it's his career high in terms of points, but he was the first player in NBA history with eight made threes, 10 assists, and three blocks in a game. And you're thinking to yourself, well, that sounds random, but the reason it sounds so random is it's such a rare combination, right? Like, how would a guy have 10 assists and three blocks and hit eight threes, right? Like, what prototype of player would do that? It's not going to be a big man ordinarily unless it's Jokic, right? Because you're not going to have the assist. So you think, okay, it would probably be a wing that's like a good shooter. And Derek White is right now second in the NBA amongst guards in terms of block shots. So to get the assist, the made threes, and... The blocks, it's just a silly, silly combination. You look at him, too. This is his best stretch as a Celtic. Six games in February, he's a plus 77. Entering this game in February, 21.6 a game, 55.6% from the field, 50 from three, 6.2 rebounds, 5.2 assists. And if you just look at his plus minus on the season, he's now up to plus 303, which is seventh in the NBA. The guys ahead of him, four Nuggets, because they all play with Jokic, Jason Tatum, and Darius Garland. That's the neighborhood that Derek White is in right now. And you can say, well, Brian, it's because he plays with Tatum. Yes, certainly. That's part of it. But that's why we talk about Derek White and the fit with the team, where he makes quick decisions. He fits in perfectly with Tatum, who is always going to be a high usage guy. You want him with the ball in his hands and second side action. When you swing the ball to Derek White, he can make a play. And as we're seeing right now, he can legitimately run the offense. You look at the numbers on the season. Sees with Derek White on the court, 120.4 offensive rating, 110.6 defensive rating, so plus 9.8 net rating. So that means per 100 possessions, the Celtics are outscoring teams by 9.8 points with Derek White on the court. Without him on the court, that number goes down to plus 1.1. So the Celtics with Derek White on the court this year are 8.7 points per possession better when he's on the court than off the court. So he has just been tremendous. And we go back to the deadline last year, just a huge move for Brad Stevens. I give him a lot of credit. Obviously, he had a little bit of a struggle in December and January shooting the basketball, right? When a lot of the guys on the Celtics didn't, he's completely turned that around. So Derek White is like carrying this team right now. He has had back-to-back 10 assist games, back-to-back games with at least 20 points and 10 assists for Derek White. It's been tremendous to watch. Okay, Sam Hauser. He's hit at least four threes now in four straight games. He had six threes today. He had 20 points, hit a big one to make it 94-89. But this guy was basically out of the rotation, right? And justifiably so. We gave you the numbers, how poorly he shot the basketball in December and in January. And for him to turn it around, stay ready, stay confident. Now, a lot of it had to do with some of the injuries you've been dealing with. But he is another guy that is perfect to play with Tatum when he has his shot going, right? Because Tatum creates so much attention, draws so many double teams that Hauser is going to get open looks. You have to knock him down like you were earlier on in the season, and he's doing this again now. So big to see Hauser hitting these shots, especially with some of the injuries you're dealing with right now. Okay, Mike Muscala. I told you I liked the move the other day in terms of the trading deadline. I felt like he could give them some floor spacing, hit some shots. We weren't going nuts. We weren't queuing the duck boats because of Mike Muscala. We were just pointing out the fact that he fits in with this team. He's a guy that can hit threes. He's a guy that can give you 15 minutes like we've seen the past couple of games. You look at today, hits two threes, 10 points, and then... Last game against Charlotte, his debut, he had four threes, 16 minutes, he had 12 points, okay? So, 
what we saw, that's the good with Mike Muscala, is he can spread the floor for you. He's a legitimate stretch five. We also saw the shortcomings, right? In that third quarter, what were the Grizzlies doing? They were just hunting him down. In particular, John Morant was getting the switch. It's like when you watch a playoff basketball game. You're going after the weakest defender. That's what they were doing. So he sort of got exposed there. After that, Jaron Jackson Jr. backed him down, got an easy basket at the rim. So these are things that are going to happen to Mike Muscala. But again, I come back to the whole idea. He isn't brought here to be a star. He isn't brought here to be a lockdown defender. He's just here to eat up innings, right? And there aren't a ton of guys like John Morant that are just going to seek out mismatches like that left and right. So yeah, some negative in terms of the defensive ability of Mike Muscala, but I'll take a guy that's going to give me 15 minutes a night and can hit a bunch of threes for me at the five position. I'll live with that. And what we saw in the fourth quarter, I give Joe Mazzulla credit. I know I criticized the timeouts, but what do we see in the fourth quarter? Oh yeah, we're not going to play Mike Muscala anymore because in crunch time, we don't want Ja going at him. So it works out. All right. By the way, Rob, 16 rebounds. We mentioned that in the emails. Five offensive. He had that, by the way, how about that pass he made to Derek White where he caught the ball in the air and kicked it out to Derek White for a three. Just a ridiculous play. He's now at a career high in terms of per 36 uh, rebounds, 8.5 rebounds per 36 minutes, 4.8 offensive rebounds, as we mentioned, the five. So game changer today, Rob Williams, just getting this team extra opportunities. I felt like, I know Pritchard's had some not great comments recently, but I felt like he gave you some good minutes, and I know he didn't play a ton, but he hit the three to make it 88-87. And right after that, makes makes a real nice play defensively where he goes and he doubles Jaron Jackson Jr., who follows him. By the way, Jaron Jackson Jr., probably going to win the defensive player of the year. That guy cannot stop following. He committed a foul on offense. or he's just near the sideline. There's no reason to grab Pritchard. He does it, but then basically right after that, so he hits the three, then he has that play defensively, the turnover that he gets from the Jackson foul, and then he drives left, leaves Luke Kennard in the dust, finds Grant for an open three. So I th- th- thought some good minutes there from Pritchard. I really felt like Grant saved them a bit in that third quarter where things were falling apart. He had a nice cut, easy bucket, seals off the defender. Then he drew a foul on Kennard. He missed both free throws, but then I, fe- I felt like he injected life into the team because he got an offensive rebound on a three, and he got back to the free throw line, right? Then he drove, he found Mascala at the bucket. This is something Grant's been better at this year is driving the basketball, driving closeouts. He had a nice offensive rebound with six minutes left in the game, and then it ends up with a Derek White three to make it 99-91. And then he had an offensive rebound again late in the game with four minutes and 16 seconds left. He gets to the free throw line, hits two shots, makes it 104-94. So yeah, the box score again is not going to look great for Grant Williams, but I do feel like he really impacted that third quarter. All right. I did want to mention these buyout guys real briefly here. So Danny Green is off the board. Woj had it that he's going to Cleveland. I really felt like this would have been a good fit for the Celtics. Now, he did tear his ACL and his LCL last postseason on May 12th. So he's not really back yet. And he had only played three games in Memphis. But last postseason, shot 38% from deep. He's a career 38.9% three-point shooter in the playoffs. 40.8% in 12 games last year. And I just feel like veteran guy that's won, what, three NBA championships? Yeah, Spurs, Raptors, Lakers, three championships. I understand that the health, it was a risk there, but I would have loved to have this guy on this team. Just another guy that can hit some shots, and if he gets close to what he was pre-injury, maybe he can give you some good defensive minutes as well in the postseasons. played in a shit ton of big games. Unfortunately, I think what's hurting the Celtics is the reason they don't get Danny Green is they're, like, too deep, right? Like, 
Cleveland can offer him more minutes than the Celtics, right? Because they desperately need guys on the wing line. So from a Celtics perspective, them being loaded almost hurts them in this situation. And the same thing could be said about Terrence Ross, who I thought would be a nice fit. He signs with Phoenix, 38.1% from deep this season. And he's playing about 22 minutes per game. He's been linked to the Celtics for like years, going back to the Evan Fournier trade. Like the people thought they may go after Terrence Ross. But again, with Phoenix, and I know that they just got Kevin Durant, but they can also offer him more playing time, right? Because you look at that roster now, you gutted it to bring in Kevin Durant, no bridges. And now you're looking for minutes at that three position and two slash three. And you got a guy that can certainly do that coming off the bench. And Ross, that's what he's been in his career. He's a gunner off the bench. I thought he would have been a good fit. Uh, Will Barton, who is a guy I don't want, okay? So 19.6 minutes per game this season. He's shooting just 38.7% from the field. How about this? He is shooting 39.5% on twos. That's 250th out of 251 qualifiers. Think about how bad that is. He's 57.6% in the restricted area, okay? That's 234th out of 251 qualifiers. From floater range, 30%. That is 232nd out of 251 qualifiers. This guy is not having a good season whatsoever. And the other thing is, he is a chucker. He's averaging 13.1 field goal attempts per 36 minutes. If you look at the Celtics, only three guys are over 12 this year. Tatum, Brown, and Brogdon. Okay, I do not want any part of Will Barton whatsoever because he's the type of guy that wants to get shots up. And... I just don't think that's a good fit with this team, where I do think that Will Barton, based on his history, he will try to hijack the offense, right? You want guys like, I was mentioning with Danny Green. He's over himself. He's a roll guy. He's just trying to hit threes and play some defense. That's not who Will Barton is. I don't want Barton. Now, Stanley Johnson is another guy. It's an interesting name because he's still only 26. If you go back to that draft with him and Justice Winslow, these were like supposed to be these great 3 and D guys for years to come. Didn't really work out for either one of them. So the Spurs just released him. He's 6'6", 240. So he's playing, he was playing about 15 minutes a game this year. Career high, 53.3% from the field and 45% on threes. So here's the thing, though. His career, 39.1% from the field and 30.5% from three. So I don't really trust the shooting, right? Like, And his free throws are at 66.7%, which kind of tells you, okay, maybe he's just run into some shooting luck so far this season with San Antonio. But if my choices are Stanley Johnson or Will Barton, I'll take a chance on Stanley Johnson because I know Stanley Johnson, he's not going to expect to get a ton of shots. He's going to come in, try to give you some good minutes defensively. So I'd rather take that over Will Barton. I just, I've never been a fan of Will Barton's game, and I just feel like he's going to try to do too much offensively. I know Terrence Ross is that type of player too, but I just think he's a superior player right now to Will Barton. And those numbers from two-point territory are just bad. But just to sort of put a bow on the buyout market conversation, I really, my take is that I really believe that the Celtics having all this depth is actually hurting them in the buyout market, as crazy as that sounds, because they can't offer the minutes. Like, these guys want to go to contenders, but they also want to play, right? Like, Danny Green wants to play. Terrence Ross wants to play. The Celtics really can't offer you that. All right. As always, make sure to get your voicemails in, 617-396-7172. Again, that's 617-396-7172. And as we did earlier, you can email your thoughts and questions to offthepike at gmail.com. Again, offthepike at gmail.com. Very easy. Thanks so much to Jamie McClellan for not only producing this podcast, but filling in with the emails as well, and Steve Cerruti. And we'll chat to you guys in a couple of days. 